Hello, and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood from that little-known director, Quentin Tarantino. I'm happy to be joined once again by my friend and recurring guest of the podcast, Josh Brown. Josh, thanks for being here for this one. Thank you. Yeah, so, I mean, look, this is a... This is a pretty big deal to get a Quentin Tarantino movie. It only happens once every few years, and everyone was very excited for the release of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because Quentin Tarantino is a filmmaker who's always been informed by show business and has lots of references to movies and things like that in his, in his films, but this is the first time where he's actually made a movie directly about Hollywood, even if he's done a bunch of films that are set in L.A. So I think everyone was very excited for that, plus the you have stars like Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, Mark Margot Robbie. So it's a very big deal. And I feel like there's just a lot to talk about with this film. Uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood tells the story of 1969 Hollywood set set around the time of the uh, when the Manson family was kind of making inroads into the city. And uh, but we have fictional characters also, in addition to Sharon Tate, as uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's Rick Dalton is an aging Western star who is kind of grappling with his place in the industry. And he is often accompanied by his friend and uh, sometimes stunt double Cliff Booth, played by Brad Pitt. And, you know, I, 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 part of what's interesting about this movie, Josh, is that it's not that plot heavy and they, we follow these characters a lot and we kind of, uh, see Manson adjacent things that kind of happen, but you know, maybe not really. And we're just going to spoil this thing throughout because by the time people listen to this, they'll have had time to see it. And I don't think anyone's going to see a Quentin Tarantino movie because we told them to do it, you know, like they're going to see it and we may as well talk about it instead of like having to have awkward conversations around spoilers like we sometimes do here and i've heard other podcasts do you know like i don't think anyone who cares about seeing a quentin tarantino movie starring leonardo dicaprio is going to listen to a podcast even ones that have far more listeners than this one to make their decision on so we are going to talk about it as if anyone listening has seen it so josh so, so you know tony stark dies and once upon a time Hollywood. Yeah, uh, that was something that I, unfortunately, that's a spoiler right there that I screwed up for myself anyway by being an idiot who got on Twitter after the first day and game was out. So that's just a personal problem on my part. But anyway, uh, Josh, I, I mean, I, I think you're a pretty big Quentin Tarantino fan too. So and I, I'm glad that you're here because I think you have a, a, a little bit of a deeper knowledge of some of the movies that this movie is referencing. I'm just not someone that's seen a ton of Westerns from that time. And, you know, uh, Rick Dalton, obviously, Obviously, has uh, a big part of his career was set doing those kind of movies, and I think Quentin Tarantino obviously has something to say and wanted to kind of uh, really get us into that era where I think we were really about to go through a transitional phase in the in the movie industry. So, I mean, just I want to start big picture for a second. Though, like, what, what, what was your biggest takeaway from this movie? Because I know you really liked it. Um, my biggest takeaway was like you know like Quentin Tarantino is one of the most powerful like directors working today in a time when like you know, not many auteurs can like get this type of, you know, uh, big push opening weekend on an original idea, uh, when he can make a $90 million movie about such a niche topic as sixties network television. Like the thing with Tarantino is the fact that I think what's incredible is that he made stuff that is, um, that he found cool and, uh, that he found personally cool and that he was obsessed with, he made them like mainstream and popular uh, through his works while they were, you know, often kind of marginalized or looked down upon, whether it's the martial arts genre or black exploitation or anything like that. Or even the actors themselves that he used. Yeah, exactly. 
And, and in this case, I think this is the most niche he's ever gotten where, you know, the thing about the movie is that it's less about the movies, except for, you know, some of the stuff that like Sharon Tate, um, like this movie called the wrecking crew, uh, that she's in or, uh, a clip from the great escape, which he cleverly like ha- inserts, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio into it, like Forrest Gump style. Um, but it's more about like these, like, obscure 60 network television shows that like are are forgotten and like i think as of late because when he was making hateful eight he talked about how like that was inspired by these 60s television shows and basically that hateful eight was almost like what if i took like you know in the movie in this movie leonardo caprio plays the heavy uh which is when a famous star of a tv show makes a guest appearance on another tv show as the villain of of that show and like his idea for hateful eight was why don't i get all the villains from these different tv shows like when they were all doing these guest spots and made a movie about that and so i think these last two movies are him like fixating on television and also is reflective of his like you know interest in this 60s era pre-new hollywood but this you know golden age of hollywood is about to collapse at this point like the stu- old studio system is about to collapse and these are the type of movies that you know are foundational to his uh style and ethos like these are i always said this movie is like new beverly the movie because it seems like all the references are stuff that like he plays at his current theater there's even a new beverly reference <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think it's even for someone like me who, like I said, is maybe not as familiar with Westerns of that time. It was still really cool to like, at least examine this time because I am more familiar uh, with the movies of the 70s that uh, you kind of like you see a little bit of where that influence is starting to come in where, I mean, uh, Roman Polanski, I mean, is talked about in this movie as kind of being the next big thing. And you just kind of know, like, if you just think about like, oh, what other directors are about to like really, really start like coming out with massive stuff in the 70s, whether it be, like, just, you know, I, I don't know, like, uh, Coppola, Sidney Lumet, like, the people that are making all the movies that those guys made, even if they might have, like, started out in the 60s, like, they really start taking over with those kind of movies in the 70s, plus actors like, you know, Jack Nicholson, Al Pacino, who, ironically enough, is in this movie, or Dustin Hoffman, stuff like that, like, those guys really kind of come into their own with a whole other level of film in the 70s, and I just had never really taken a lot of time to stop and think about people like a Rick Dalton, you know, and... Uh, I know they're. I'm sure they have different touchstones of actors they touched on as they did for the Cliff Booth character, but those are guys that I was just not as familiar about, and so I'm I'm doubly unfamiliar with just like what what it was like to be a person like that, and similarly what it's like to be a person like a Cliff Booth. Even in today in Los Angeles, I like thinking about that. Like I think he's just like going deep in various parts of the entertainment industry. Like even in 2019, how many Cliff Booths are out there? Like people that went to Hollywood to like not even like have a to get a job that was gonna like make them famous for a hot minute but just like do something like be a stunt double and it didn't work out for one reason or another like there have got to be so many people like that just around la today who like had a had a cup of coffee uh for lack of a better term doing something of that ilk for like a couple of seasons on a tv show and then just had to go live a life and it's funny that he and i really enjoyed him like creating deep characters that were like entertainment adjacent like that and just seeing how they go around in this world which on top of that is just really really fun to look at you know like i mean there are millions of thousands of movies set in los angeles i mean there's a whole documentary you know you've seen la plays itself 
uh, uh, yeah. Oh, the diver that famous yeah. diver. Yeah. Yeah. I have not gotten around to it, but I've always it's really watched. long. I can't even say I've watched the whole thing. I feel like I mean, it's like three half, three hours plus. But I mean, I've watched it, like the majority of it. Like it's just like there's there's been so many different versions of LA in movies, and I think it kind of speaks to like how how impressive a vision Quentin Tarantino has. That like it's still fun to pick apart this one, and it feels unlike anything we've seen before. Yeah, and like the thing with like the Rick Dalton character, there's like sort of like two directions he can go. On the one hand, like you know, there like actors that inspire Rick Dalton are like. Tab Hunter, Ed Burns, um, George Maharis, like these TV actors, and to a certain extent, William Shatner, like that couldn't really transition into film. And then there are the TV actors who managed to do so that like are the more successful versions of Rick Dalton. Like, how, for- how good of a, how good of a movie is the Fourteen Fists of McCluskey supposed to be? You think? <laughs> well, that's the thing. He, according to Tarantino, like. Um, Rick Dalton's sort of like getting like the D list like type of movie. So like he's not in like um the Magnificent Seven, but he would be in like the third sequel to the Magnificent Seven and maybe have like the second lead in that, you know? Gotcha. Um, so those are like the types of movies he would be. But like a more successful version of Rick Dalton is kind of Burt Reynolds and Clint Eastwood a little bit from this time period. Because Burt Reynolds was this guy who actually had a famous uh stuntman called Hal Needham and they were like buddies like similar to him and Cliff and they like Hal Needham ended up directing Smokey and the Bandit and winning an honorary Oscar for his contributions to stunt work and becoming like this famous like director of action movies while being also known as Burt Reynolds stuntman and Burt Reynolds also was someone who went to Italy like following Clint Eastwood's lead after Clint Eastwood broke out so successfully with the spaghetti westerns like once upon a like the fistful of dollar movies that when uh burt reynolds uh went to italy he made movies that has similar titles to um he worked with sergio corbucci who are who's the director of the rick dalton movies in uh italy hmm. um and you know rick dalton's movie is called like minnesota gym or something like that and or nebraska gym like burt reynolds made a movie called minnesota clay and navajo joe like so i think like burt reynolds and he was originally supposed to be in the movie as the bruce stern role as george spawn owner of the spawn family ranch like i think that's like the more successful version of rick dalton but yeah like i i really like enjoyed like the exploration of just hanging out with these characters through their day-to-day lives and what i like about the cliff booth character is that he's just a dude that may not you know is not as um saddened by like his lack of fame but more happy that he's just not in prison and just enjoying life yeah (laughs) he always has like a friend that allows him to like uh be adjacent to like a pretty cool part of society and still be near fun things but i think it is funny that you mentioned the term hangout because i think that gets it where my slight disappointment with the movie comes in. And I should say, I still really enjoy the movie. Like I, I, I just think as a matter of course, like Quentin Tarantino doesn't make bad movies. Like I, I enjoy them to varying degrees and yeah. I, and I really enjoyed a lot of this one. You know, I mean, some people like will love some of his movies, but like then totally shit on like hateful eight or something yeah, like that. Yeah, like, I'm not one of those. I think every movie he's done. Is yeah. Good. I, and I, I can criticize parts of them. And like, I, I don't even know if I have huge criticisms of this. I, I want to talk some about some of the bigger criticisms other people have that maybe aren't as big of a deal to me. But one of the yeah. things where I think it didn't quite meet my expectations was that i it was 
when before we even saw a trailer, I think, or maybe when people started like seeing the movie a little more, getting a better idea of what it was actually going to be about, because it was when it was first announced, it was just going to be like, oh, he's making a Manson murders movie, and that could mean so many different things. Coming yeah, from Quentin and I think like people kind of like I interpret it as a, oh, I think because like Tarantino has been talking about like yeah, like around the time he was promoting Hateful Eight, he was talking about like you know Hateful Eight has some horror film influences, like the thing I thought. Oh, this is the way he's going to try to make a horror film, which is through the Manson, and it completely is not that. Um, and the odd thing about like when I heard about the Manson family murders, and I knew about like the death of Sharon Tate. What I realized, like when like both watching the trailers for this movie and then watching the final product, is he, he does this alternative history um, uh, thing that he did in Glorious Bastards. But the difference is, is that I think pretty much everybody knows that Hitler dies in world war two. <laughs> I'm not necessarily sure that people under a certain age know of Sharon Tate and the outcome of the murder. I mean, maybe, but like, I mean, I think people that care enough to go see a Tarantino movie, like, I mean, you're wait, you're, you're like 23 or 24 years old, right? Like, yeah. you know that. I mean, like, I feel like, I, I don't know. I feel like most people are probably going to know. I don't know. But like, I, I see what you're saying though, where it's like, there's a little bit more of like, you're a little more like, not as certain of what a revisionist history, what exactly is going to qualify as revisionist history going to a movie like this. Um, But like to get back to my original point though, it was really marketed as like a hangout movie to a certain extent. Once people learned a little more about it, like, like, Oh yeah, you're hanging out with this guy and his stunt double and it's Brad Pitt, Leonardo DiCaprio. And you know, I didn't think there was as much above them hanging out as I had been led to believe there was going to be you're hanging out with them individually, but not the two of them together. And I really liked watching the two of them act together. You know, like, I mean, it just like, even the scene of them just like kind of sitting at the bar before he has his meeting with Al Pacino or something like that, watching Cliff sip on a Bloody Mary. I mean, it, it, it reminded me of watching Brad Pitt just eat and eat and eat next to George Clooney in the Oceans movies. You know, like, and, like I'm so on board with like a Brad Pitt, like best supporting actor nom for oh, this. I'm very here for that too. Yeah. And, it's like nobody's like more relaxed on screen um, than like Brad Pitt. Just like I'm just my job is just to be a movie star here. Okay. I can't I, I can't imagine like it seems like I bet for so many actors to seem like that cool and so chill and so relaxed. Like it would take like so much effort and it, it looks effortless when he does it. And it's really it's really, really impressive. And, you know, he's just like a I, I feel like some people have criticized the character a little bit or the treatment of him with regards to the stuff with his wife, which we'll talk about. But just as far as the performance in of itself separate from all that stuff like i i mean i I just think it's a really great charming performance and it truly is a supporting performance i mean i don't know if anyone kind of knew that like yeah like co-leads in this and i think they kind of are they probably don't have like too much difference in screen time but no it does feel like he's supporting them yeah no shade like it's just it's a truly to make as that big of an impact in what is clearly a supporting performance is um it just so clearly feels like something that should get him his Oscar. Um, and also just like you kind of like miss Brad Pitt, like the movie star. Cause I think he's been absent from screen for a while. And like, it seems like it took him like ever since glorious bastards, it took him for like a while to like shake off Aldo, Aldo rain. Like, it's, well, he just know. kept, he just kept playing him in other movies and yeah, in, yeah. in war machine and in, uh, in fury. Which, by the way, the exception, though, is, like, I think the last time we've seen, like, this type of just movie star, like, performance by Brad Pitt is, like, Moneyball, which he's really good at. Um, But to the Hangout point, I think it sort of comes down to, like, another movie that, like, I almost 
rewatch. I, anytime it comes on cable now, I I've grown to really, really love and like find myself sucked into is Jackie Brown. And Jackie Brown is, you know, was kind of seen as like a disappointment for people coming off of Pulp Fiction, like because it is that is a hangout movie, um, and the stakes are much lower in that film, like it is in here. Where this is, movie is like, you know, obviously I think this is Tarantino's least violent movie, which I find funny considering it's, you know, the Manson family murders are hanging above it, and it's the one with the less, it's least pop plot driven. I think he's just wants to hang out with these characters and you're just you know it's whether or not your mileage may vary about like whether or not you are fascinated with the minutiae of like making these movies in hollywood at this time and whether or not you find the characters enjoyable to just cruise down them and through hollywood boulevard while the radio is blasting which like i i, I kind of like the texture and atmosphere of this movie where it feels just sort of anthropological without like ever making a point of it where it's just like you're seeing the culture around them without them ever actually commenting on it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like you see a lot of Rick at work. Um, and again, I think I think that it's a pretty good point because you're just watching him work. I don't think they're doing a lot of talking about like how the Western's on its way out as being like a mainstream thing or how it's Al Pacino, which by the way, I feel like he's been sort of neglected a little bit in like the press about this movie. Um, but like, I think when Pacino explains to him, like, okay, DiCaprio, like you're being set up in these guest star roles as a way of like letting the audience know that the new guy in town is more powerful and it's the new leading man. Cause they're killing you off screen all the time yeah, it's more of a character driven thing than like like you said yeah. about that character than talking about like just com- any commenting the movie is actually doing on the industry itself and yeah i mean he, pacino was really i mean kind of hamming it up but like i think he was doing the best version of that you know i, yeah, I think like the thing is just like Tar- like i think because people are like you know tarantino like pacino has been bad in movies for a while and I think it's like you know I'll st- I'll stand for Danny Collins. <laughs> and the thing is, is like I, I'm by the way I'm not like an anti Pacino guy because I actually enjoyed the ham. And I think it's just like Tarantino's characters are so heightened that like Pacino's hamminess like is totally in sync with what he's doing. So they, like he works really great as this like you know this agent um, guy. And also the thing is about this movie, I would also say is that outside the Manson family. There seems to like no character is like sinister. There's like every character is sort of likable in their own way. Um, whereas like in other Tarantino films, like you know you have like clearly like Jackie Brown, Odell Robbie is evil, or um, in Glorious Bastards, Colin o, like uh, Hans Landa. You know, like I mean, in Hateful Eight, I'd, I'd say the Kurt Russell character is actually kind of the worst in a way. Um. That's an interesting take. Um. I mean, my, my, my take on Hateful Eight, just as a quick aside, is that, like, it's actually, like, using Kurt Russell to, like, call out, like, like white white people that think, like, because they have a black friend that they should be treated better, you know, or, or that they're better than other people. And then he just, he thinks he's, like, better than other people because he was a Union soldier and, like, he can, but then, he, I don't know, he just ends up being just as bad. He's, like, one of the people that's, like, I have a black friend so I can say the N-word. He's, like, that guy. And that's what the movie's the about. Like, yeah, yeah. I think we'll get to here, I would imagine. But, yeah, like, I feel like this is, you know, the movie where, like, you know, all the characters, there's, like, I think he has a warmth for them. And I think that's why the movie ends the way it does. Yeah, I mean, 
I think that's certainly true, and it's a, and it's a, it's a point that everyone's made is that like it seems like he certainly. Uh, I don't know. I guess I, warm is the right word. I, I, I was searching for another word, but it seems like he certainly has an, a, an a, there, there is just a, it has more heart too. You know, I, I think you can find like moments where there, there are heart in a, lot, in a lot of his movies, but like, I feel like he has empathy for all of these people and it's, uh, and it, and it clearly comes through and in a, in a, in a handful of different scenes you can, you can look to. I mean, even just that final scene is like, it, it just, it just feels unlike any other way any of his movies have ended, you know? Yeah. And then, like, I would say, like, a, a scene that, like, always gets me, kind of moves me the most, uh, other than, like, scenes involving uh, Pitt and uh, DiCaprio's relationship. Because I just find that, like, I just like that there, you don't, there's not, like, a moment in the friendship where, like, you could see, like, them, like, fighting or anything like that. They're, they, they're two men who love each other, even when, like, uh, Rick is, like, firing. Yeah, like I am, I can't afford you anymore, bro. <laughs> but they're celebrating <laughs> by getting drunk, you know. And 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 Cliff saves him his life. Yeah. But the scene I find like most moving is the scene with uh, Rick Dalton and the little girl. Um, and and it's just which by the way, I think it's the first time my child has ever had like a speaking role in a Tarantino movie. Yeah, I was um, I was thinking about that. The only other time I could even like think about a kid in a Tarantino movie is like. The, the watch scene in Pulp Fiction, but I don't think he says anything. I think it's just Christopher Walken talking. You see, the moment, I, a similar thing, it was like Kill Bill where like... Um, oh, yeah, like, her daughter, which... Yeah. We, we, the, the first time her daughter shows up in volume two is like maybe like my favorite scene ever in a Tarantino movie, but I don't know if the daughter... I think she says mommy, and that's it maybe. Yeah, she had like one or two lines. I would see... The thing I was thinking of was like in volume one when like um, uh, the bride and uh, Vivica Fox were like fighting and then Vivica Fox's daughter like sees like the uh, bride but, but like those are like but again like the kids are very are not like either not prominent in Tarantino films and they, they are they've given very very little to do which is kind of cool that like what so how long has it been since uh, Kill Bill volume 2 I mean that like 2004 right yeah so so it's like he hasn't had to cast a kid in like 16 years for a part and then we which I also think is kind of telling because, like, this is a dude who also is like unmarried and without kids. Well, he's, and we'll, he's married, but he doesn't have kids. Yeah, yeah now, now he just got married. And this is a movie where, like, a character is going through a midlife crisis and then finally marries, like, an Italian woman, which I think is what he just married. You know what I mean? And I think he has kids. Yeah, no, right. So, but it's, it, it's just funny to me that, like, you're, yeah, you're right. He's never had a kid of his own, hasn't cast a kid in 16 years. And then all of a sudden, like, he casts like an eight-year-old actress that is like holds her own against Leonardo DiCaprio and is actually like kind of incredible, you know? Yeah, no, like the producer of this movie said like in the original cut of the film, there was like one more scene with that girl and it said like if he had kept that scene, that girl would have been nominated for an Oscar. Oh, and man. Like, even with like the two scenes that she has, like I think like I would totally be down for her being nominated. She has, I mean, we'll talk about the Margot Robbie stuff, but I think she already had more lines than Margot Robbie does in the movie. Yeah, which and like her scenes um, in the in the movie with the little girl is like I think find it funny that like a she comes in like she's sort of this like pretentious method actor and like I think it's somewhat of like a meta commentary as she's sitting next to DiCaprio like on him like because I imagine like you know that's probably how he is a little bit on set yeah, too. There's already been some stories about how like people are not to make eye contact with him on the set of this movie, which I don't want to think about that too much because I don't really like thinking about a star that I like being like that. But I mean, it was funny though, like you said, she starts out like that and I'm like worried, oh, this is going to be some caricature of like some crazy kid actor. And then the kid actually like has a, is like a real person. Yeah. Like she, 
she feels for him and i and i I can't tell if like when she says like that's the best acting i've ever seen is she's being genuine or just knows that this guy needs like the confidence boost (laughs) and and, and it's and it really is cool like the fact that he might need that confidence boost i mean you know like it's not that often like we get to see him play like super vulnerable characters, you know, like oh, he's very like emotionally vulnerable in this. Uh, the cat is very emotionally. Yeah, vulnerable. I mean, have we, I don't know if there's, he's done anything comparable to that since the departed, you know? And apparently, um, like there's a new vanity fair interview with him and Tarantino where they said like, they don't mention it in the film, but like Rick Dalton has bipolar disorder. Oh, and that was like sort of like the Caprio like way in a little bit with the character. I kept thinking like he was gonna have like lung cancer because I it was it kept making him cough so much. Like I, that was like I got I was I was getting angry during that scene in his trailer where he kept coughing and I was like it was just grating on my ears. I was like, I guess it's kind of funny that no one asked him if he's okay or whatever. Like he's just like coughing literally about to cough up a lung. But like that, I, I thought it was like setting something up in a ham-handed way. I was worried about him, his drinking more, uh, more, but yeah, yeah like, but I, what I like, I think with DiCaprio, like, I think like the thing with DiCaprio is that I think what this movie and Wolf of Wall Street realizes is that it is funny to see him be sort of like whiny and like a little bit like vulnerable mm-hmm. and, and, and like he does have good comic timing and it's just like, they kind of, uses that side of the capper that we don't really often see, but it's used probably the most effectively in these two movies. I mean, even when he's not saying anything, just like the way he like drinks from a pitcher of margarita or something like that, like that just elicited laughs in my audience, you know? Yeah. Cause like, I think he plays that like privilege, like that privileged dude, but also like is very insecure very well and minds the humor out of that. And also, I like how like the subtle thing where like if he's talk if he's talking as Rick Dalton in person, like he has somewhat of a stutter, you know, like he's very insecure. Yeah, um, he he he, had, he stuttered a few times. I noticed in the Al Pacino scene, like he the guy was like he's a, he's a little out of his depth, even if he isn't like totally without confidence as an actor. He thinks he's worthy of doing stuff like that when he's giving the speech about how he thinks it's important just to own property in L.A. Because, you know, all of a sudden he realizes he's living right next to Roman Polanski. Like, just when he's like, whoa, Roman Polanski. Like, you, you can tell he's a guy that's like, he recognizes, like, that Polanski's hot shit at the moment. And, like, he's not yeah. maybe on that level. And it's like, it shows some self-awareness of, like, you know, that, that could be me. I bet I have the chops to be in one of his movies. But I recognize that, like, I'm not, I'm not at that point right now. And it's like some interesting kind of self-awareness of, like, a mix of self-awareness and insecurity and confidence all at the same time. Yeah, and, and then the thing is, too, with Dalton is that what's funny is that you would think, you know, Cliff is the more confident, more uh, uh, laid-back one, and you would think, he like, given their roles in life, that, like, Dalton would be the one that's oozing charisma, oozing confidence, whereas it's Cliff, uh, and, like, also Dalton's richer than Cliff. Like, Rick Dalton has a stable job, um, and yet he's constantly insecure, while Cliff is, you know— pretty okay and pretty content where he's at um and so i want to i want to i want to ask about cliff then i mean you know i think some of the controversy of this movie is like about like his background i mean people have uh criticized the treatment of that character as like we've already talked about how much we like him but there's this whole thing about like did he kill his wife and i we've both seen the movie twice and i i just saw it two times in the first three days and didn't really like read a lot of the reaction between my first two viewings. 
So I really didn't actually think a ton of the whole thing with his wife in that during until I started reading stuff after my second viewing. I kind of read it as like a that's a reason why his career maybe never got to where it could have gone. But yeah. I didn't really like I I, I I read the scene with his wife on the boat, which has really been dissected a lot right now on the Internet is like a that thing was legitimately an accident. Like I thought like there's like a sound effect with a wave crashing as he's sitting there with the harpoon gun. And well, yeah, it might be in a slightly poor taste that I think it was supposed to kind of garner a laugh, which really no reason for that. I was, I thought we were taking it as like, Oh, he accidentally, like his gun accidentally went off because a big wave came over the boat as he was holding this thing. And understandably, like people aren't going to necessarily believe that. And that's kind of what's hurt his career. But this guy has still kind of come to a point where he can, uh, he he has made peace with that, and as we discussed earlier, is able to still enjoy life. Uh, what was your take on that character, and whether or not the movie like made a misstep in how it handled his backstory? Um, so like with the a scene pertaining to his wife, I kind of you know I think it's read you know it's supposed to be ambiguous because you know it cuts before you can actually see what happens, and so either like you know he made a mistake like you know at, like as the waves were bouncing along and it just so happened that his wife and him had like a dysfunctional relationship so it colors it or he actually intentionally just got tired of his wife um, and murdered her and I think the con like I think you know it's left to our for our imagination to decide on that and I think the one like comment like review I read where criticizing that backstory was that the thing with Cliff is like you know in another world like he's the villain of a Tarantino film where like that his wife's friends or like his, the wife itself left for dead goes out and kills like cliff but yet like cliff is you know kind of uh valorized in in this movie while like you know he also like you know really physically harms like all like the violence against women towards the end of the film despite them being manson family members you know it seems like tarantino once again like takes glee in like you know, violence against women. Like this was the critique against uh, Tafele with Daisy Darmigue and stuff where he purposely makes these women so unlikable that he lets the viewers off by, you know, having really violent. Yeah. I don't know if there was necessarily a reason to to depict his wife as a nag and give people like more reason to like stand up and try and defend him or anything like that, I guess. And I guess you can certainly read it both ways and have it as ambiguous, but I was thinking of it also in terms of Rick as far as, He's someone that, as far as we know, doesn't have any kind of real tragic backstory that we're let in on. He's had a great career, still getting steady work, even if it's not quite quite on the level that he wants to. And he still feels like very insecure and feels like he deserves more and is like capable of way more. If you read the scene with uh, Cliff and his wife as an accident and just an an honest accident that has like hindered his career, he could easily like Cliff could easily be out there feeling sorry for himself, thinking the whole world's against him, thinking he should have been a bigger deal in Hollywood and had a longer career, as I'm sure many people do, and they just think they never got their fair shake. He's not self pitying because he's just glad he's not in jail. There's uh, that too, but they also makes a comment to being on a chain gang at one point, and yeah. it's like. Is he a reliable narrator at all for any of this stuff? Because at one point we like go back and are we getting that scene on the boat from his perspective as like an unreliable narrator, similarly to like maybe that fight with Bruce Lee is just like how he's remembering and that's not really actually how it went down. Yeah, and like that, con- and there's also controversy with the depiction of Bruce Bruce Lee in this movie because again, like an Asian man not very treated fairly by Hollywood, and so like in this case, one of the coolest Asian men to ever live, he loses a fight against a white guy. True, but but I think that. 
again, I think this actually could be something, and I, I something that I started thinking about more on my own when I heard other people talking about Cliff as an unreliable narrator is that I think it's actually a very nice moment for Bruce, even if it doesn't involve dialogue, where we have another good, a really great scene where I haven't talked about is when Sharon Tate's watching the record, wrecking ball, the uh, wrecking crew, and she's getting trained by him. And I took that as like a very sweet scene, and he's there like genuinely training a character that we have come to really care about throughout the movie. If you enjoy what Margot Robbie was given to do as much as I did, it's like, wow, this is like him, like really in his element, doing something really good and training this young actress that is really trying to work her way into the industry. Like, so I was like, Oh yeah, that might not have been the best look for Bruce Lee in that fight, but that could have been Cliff's subjective memory. And here he is like being good at his job. Yeah, no, like my take on the clip, I have two things on the, Hey, first off, I, I thought like the, like, I think it's kind of overblown, like how much like Cliff, like, beats him like i you know i think like if that fight continues like because at first like uh bruce lee like you know yeah over kicks the him. shit out of him the first time yeah yeah like he first like kicks him down to the ground and i think if that fight continues like it, it looked pretty even to me to be honest but that being said i would say two things a i think it's somewhat like it could be cliff a little bit exaggerating exaggerating in his head what went down and then secondly i think the main point of that fight is that um, Bruce Lee is this up and coming star. Like, yeah, at this point in time, uh, Cliff doesn't know that. And so I think this is the type type of thing where like the fight represents that like Cliff won the battle, but Bruce Lee eventually wins the war because Bruce Lee is going to become like the biggest star in the world. Well, he dies and, like four years later, but yeah, but he's going to be, you know, more famous than Cliff ever was. And right art because of being this awesome stunt performer and he's introducing martial arts into western culture whereas cliff is like the old school you know uh sun guys you know like represents that and so i view like the controversy over it a little bit like i get where it's coming from just because again you know apparently bruce lee's family wasn't happy yeah like asian men don't give like that many breaks and to have like bruce lee the coolest Asian man, like in cinema, um, you know, lose a fight to Cliff Booth, this, you know, somewhat of a loser, uh, white guy, you know, it seems degrading, but at the same time, I think it kind of misses the point. What I think the scene is trying to illustrate, which is, you know, Bruce Lee, Bruce Lee is the future of Hollywood. Cliff is not. And so whatever, you know, even though like uh, cliff, um, won that fight, Bruce Lee is going to be the person that people remember, not cliff. Yeah, I want to finish up talking about Cliff by talking about the Spawn Ranch sequence, which is, I mean, one of a handful of, like, really just impressive, tense sequences in this movie. Uh, or I don't even want to say tense. It's it's like the standout tense moment. For, and Tarantino mm-hmm. does tension and suspension very well in general, but I think that, that, that sequence almost kind of stands apart from the rest of it. And that's obviously before we get to the end of the movie and we see that, yeah, he's going to kind of pull a inglorious bastards and change some stuff i i'm thinking during that spawn ranch sequence that like oh well i mean maybe we're gonna start seeing like some more creations of some additional murders here from them with uh maybe cliff's gonna meet an early demise and i thought that that scene had like a haunting feeling to it in a way that like made that a pretty reasonable expectation to have i mean that's obviously not what ended up happening but like i was I was kind of dreading it for that entire sequence. Uh, how do you think Tarantino pulled that entire, uh, really like 20, 30 minutes of the movie off? See, I think that like on first watch, I was like, again, I felt the same thing as you for, um, 
that scene was very suspenseful, very tense, you know, felt like it's straight out of a horror film. And then on second viewing, because you know what happens at the end of the film, it's, it's probably the least watchable sequence, just on the basis of that it loses that suspenseful element, because once you know what happened, I can't, I don't know if I could really fault the movie, uh, um, but it's just like, every like so that scene sort of dragged for me upon second watch, just because, like, you know, everything else is fun and you're hanging out with them. And even, like, the finale is great. It's just, like, the, you know, because you know the ultimate outcome of that sequence. I'll take your word for it. I almost fell asleep during it on my second viewing, but I think that was almost more because I was, like, really hungover. And yeah. uh, I, I just I just was the second time I saw it. And I, uh, I, just, I just gotten over a hangover, and it's like I probably might have just been tired because of that. But, like, I agree. Like, once you know it's going to happen, like, you're like, man, is I mean, I kind of knew, and all I knew is that they, like, hung out on Spawn Ranch, the Manson family. Like, I didn't know a lot about their arrangement with George Spawn and that, like, they basically just, like, I don't know, like they hoard themselves out to him so they could give him somewhere to he let him stay there. So I, for all I for all I knew before that, like aside, I just knew they stayed on Spawn Ranch. I didn't know if they like they actually killed George Spawns and that's how they st- st- staked out on Spawn Ranch. I didn't know. So I thought, is he about to like walk into that room and is this going to like someone else going to jump out and kill him or something? Like I, I really had no idea. And then I learned a little more about the history after that. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, someone that was a little more uh, well-versed in Manson family history than me might not have been like as uh, as on the edge of their seat as I was. See, I'm not like the ultimate, like by no means, I'm not the ultimate like Manson family murders, uh, like, like historian on on this podcast. The only I, I knew about George Spawn, I knew that like he exchanged sexual favors for the Manson family to live there. The other thing I did know about, like in relation to Manson family and, and Sharon Tate, was that um, so like Roman Polanski, because you know Bruce Lee was training Sharon Tate, they became really close with Bruce Lee. And the thing that I found out was when Roman Polanski came back to the United States to find out his wife was murdered and the police was like, you know, who could have done it or whatever. And they, you know, it took a while for them to figure out it was the Manson family. Bruce Lee was the first suspect. Like, mm. uh, um, like Bruce Lee, like left his glasses there or something. And like, and so, and like, you know, Bruce Lee, you know, his hands, lethal weapons or whatever. Like he, he like, you know, was the one who was the most physically capable out of like their circle of friends to have, and they and they had told the police had told Roman Plansky like, you know, it has to be someone that you know, like it has to be suspect, you know, the unexpected or whatever. And obviously, it wasn't Bruce Lee, and so like Plansky kind of felt bad that he even like suspected it. But for mm-hmm. brief time, Bruce Lee was a suspect mm-hmm. in the murder of Sharon Tate, which would have been kind of an interesting thing to explore um, had they gone that route with yeah. the. Uh, which I guess that leads to the ending of the movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, we'll, we'll talk about that then, and then I'll go work backwards a little bit and talk about the performances and technical aspects of this movie. But I mean, again, I think uh, it wasn't hard. It wasn't. It wasn't totally shocking. Like I just, you know, I kind of felt like they were going to do something a little different. It just, it just seemed like it wasn't really worth this whole endeavor just to recreate the Manson murders when I knew like a lot of movies had done that before. But like. I at the same time I I was still pretty entertained by that final sequence. I think I, I enjoyed a lot of the movie that came before it just as much as that. But it, there, I'm sure there is a p- pretty big segment of the audience that was like a little disappointed that they didn't get two hours and forty minutes. That was just like the final twenty minutes. I like that my expectations being upended a little bit and just having uh, an entire movie be something else and then just kind of like erupted a little bit of violence. And 
the violence was unique enough that I was like, I was cool with it. It was a fun twist to have um, Cliff be on acid for it. And uh, now I I realized when I rewatched Glorious Bastards uh, last week that Aldo was like snorting cocaine the whole time, and I just like kind of forgot. I, I, I never realized that. Yeah, he's basically just like like every like I mean in every scene almost that he's in like you see him like snorting something. So I mean between that and like Floyd and True Romance being just a pothead, like he just does drugs now. Tarantino has him does drugs in the movie. Not that he didn't direct the True Romance, but you get what I mean. Yeah. And uh, so it was it was kind of funny just to have a character like kicking ass while being that high and kicking ass in an entertaining way. And I mean I guess that's where another uh, issue with the some people have brought up with the whole violence against a uh, woman thing is that they really do some pretty uh, rough stuff to the two uh, Manson girls that are there. But I mean, I don't know. In the moment, that didn't really upset me as much. I mean, it's kind of sorry. Uh, you're breaking up for a second. What'd you say? Oh, I was saying. Yeah, but like here's the thing with the violence against women thing. These are like, women that were going to go murder people. You know, like it's like. Yeah, that too. Which, but you know, like you know, you can refute it in saying that like. Um, you, it's still egregious, you know, how gratuitous, like, it's almost an excuse to make it so gratuitous, but also the, my, my only, like, rebuttal to the argument, because here's the thing, I did feel like it was excessive in this case, <laughs> uh, like, I was like, I, okay, I'm like, I kind of see their point, but, um, but the one rebuttal I would have is, like, I mean, like, I do get his do- uh, balls eaten by a dog, like, it's, it's not like pretty men- equal opportunity, uh, yeah, like, like you know, like Marvin's head, like once, like a conversation with these people that say that, like, uh, the violence against like women is far worse in Tarantino movies than it is to like men. Like, I just, I, it, you know, like I remember a cop getting his ear cut off. Like, I, like it's, it's one of those. I mean, things Marcellus that, uh, gets it pretty bad too. You know, yeah, Marcellus gets raped. Yeah. Um, like yeah, no, like I, like I, 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 I kind of like I, it seems like he's violent towards every walk of life. Well, on top of that, like if you want to talk about, uh, I, I want to back up for a second, I guess, and talk. Uh, gosh, we're going so long; it's late. But like, I, there's so much to talk about this movie. I mean, uh, just larger overall. I think people are just kind of giving him a little bit of criticism for just his overall treatment of women. I mean, referencing even going so far as as so far back to reference, like I mean. Uh, whether it be his uh, varying uh, stories with his relationships with Harvey Weinstein and how he knew certain things in the 90s or had heard things and or like his treatment of Uma Thurman during the Kill Bill uh, filming and making Which, her by the way, like the Uma Thurman thing seems a little bit unfair to him because like they seem like they're cool like like she said like hey people kind of um, um, like he fucked up and like I you know he apologized yeah I, I I'm not yeah I'm not faulting him too much yeah. for that it's just it's yeah. just stuff that's all now all of a sudden getting brought up and to add on top of that there's this thing with you know uh Mar- Margot Robbie being uh having a underwritten part um and, well, uh, and my take though like with the Sharon Tate like having a small role in the movie is like I think a because like she is this outsized historical figure. I think she's supposed to sim- be much more of a symbol, and you could probably take issue with that. But I think like if, she- they, if it's just that they cast an unknown actress, I just don't even think it'd be a story. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, I yeah, like I think like she's she's a, she's much more of a storytelling function like and it and like it works for the story that he's telling that there's a reason as to why and i think it's also somewhat respectful because what, what do you think that reason is though so 
it's like you know one in the early intro to the movie you know you get this during the opening credits you get this montage you know rick and cliff like driving through hollywood hills to get to their job while meanwhile like Margot Robbie is like, I mean, Sharon Tate is in the air, in the air above them, like hovering in the airplane. And I think it's just sort of like Sharon Tate is always going to be this sort of mystical, like on a higher plane that these people never really interact with. Like they, you don't really have, like you'll never, like these characters will never reach her status. And so therefore it's always, she's always kind of like this. And also like in part because like Sharon Tate's life, was short-lived and given the murder like her she herself as a historical figure is also somewhat of an enigma and so she's both an enigma to these characters and it also in real life like we don't really know that much about her except for like you know her presence and i think that's the reason why like yeah i mean i guess he could have learned more about her through talking to her family but at the same time i mean i guess he you could say that he's not going to be presumptuous and pretend like he knows everything about her i mean it is a fictionalized uh version of a story so he i guess he has license to do more but at the same time you could say it's respectful for him to if he's ca- still capturing the essence of her as a person and i think it's a tribute to i guess more even more so her performance that like i do feel like we have a pretty good idea who she was like i think ideally yeah we probably have a few more scenes where she just has she does some talking mm-hmm. uh but like at the same time like I, I thought that scene in the movie theater was one of the better scenes in any movie I've seen all year. Yeah. And I think also it's just like, you know, she's a mystery to us as like, you know, as a figure in history as she is to like the characters, you know what I mean? Like they're constantly thinking what's happening up in uh, like up, up above the road right there on that street. Like what's happening with Karen Tate? Like what's, what's, you know, if only we could get into like her social life. You and know? also, like you said, she is a symbol too of just like, uh, the new Hollywood that's coming, even if she didn't yeah. really have a as much of a chance to be a part of it as uh, she should have, it, it, it is something else for uh, Rick to aspire to. Just like seeing seeing her and and being in such close proximity to her, and I think it's also just uh, I think it's a way to be re- just relatable to anyone in general. To go back to that movie theater scene for a second, I mean, I even thought about when I was in college and I wrote for my school newspaper, mm-hmm. and I and I I, I would I, every now and then, not that often, but see someone in class like reading my paper. I mean, yeah. I feel like that probably used to happen a lot more now that like so much stuff is done on the internet. But like at the time, I wrote for a paper that was put out every day, and it, it's something really relatable. Anyone can ever look at some. What's what's that? And so you're really dating yourself, like you were. Oh, yeah. You were writing back in um, my day in 2012. Um, <laughs> read newspaper, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. I mean, but like, I think I feel like everyone has had that feeling before, where they're having someone look at something they're responsible for, whether it be a piece of art or a piece or a piece of uh, carpentry or any or any or something they cooked or something they wrote. You know, uh, and having that feeling where you can kind of take. Uh, um, take pleasure in other people taking pleasure in something you've done and I thought even just with her facial expressions that Margot Robbie did a pretty good job of capturing that feeling of someone that is on the cusp of something great and at the beginning of something and it's uh, and obviously that we were at the beginning of an era at that point and he I guess uses her as a device in that way it's just I don't think it was necessary to 
she could have stood for all that and still had a few more scenes where uh, she had some talking about something that was going on in her life. When you, you, you're indulging, when Quentin Tarantino is going to indulge himself for two hours and forty minutes, I don't think anyone's going to really complain all that much more because he went two hours and fifty minutes. You know, um, or yeah, like because um, like I think like Steve McQueen like tells you more about her life. Uh, Damian Lewis as Steve McQueen tells you a little bit more about her life than like Sharon Tate does. <laughs> um, yeah, um, he's saying all this stuff about her in 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 Jay Sebring, but like I mean I that and like I, I mean I, I guess it, and I'm not I, I don't have a problem with the cameos or anything like that. It's yeah. it's kind of cool I guess, but like I mean Emil Hirsch is just like kind of there and like has pops into a couple rooms a few times and that's it. It's like. It, it, it's almost, and I, I was just going to ask you about these cameos anyway, and but like it's almost more distracting, like for at least some of these roles where it's like you're casting like a really well-known actor if you're not going to give him anything to do, you know? It's like, hey, there's Scoot McNary literally not saying a word or something like that, or and I know I'm sure a lot of this stuff got cut out, like there's like freaking Tim Roth got cut out of this movie, you know? I mean, Marsden, yes. Which is crazy because James Marsden was playing Bruce, uh, uh, not Bruce, Burt Reynolds when Burt Reynolds was originally supposed to be George Bond. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, so a lot of people got cut out, and maybe most of them, I'm sure, did have bigger parts written and stuff like that. But you know, at the same time, like, uh, it's like if you're gonna have Emil Hirsch there, like, I don't know, just like make him ha- make him have like a couple scenes where they're actually interacting. As, as, and instead, it's just totally informed by like that Steve McQueen monologue. Yeah, um, which you know, I was actually. I thought it, I think it's still satisfactory enough. Um, um, it like, you know, it's funny because like the Playboy Mansion scene almost seems kind of like superfluous. But that's like, but again, I think you could say that about like a lot of scenes in this movie. But it's just like it, it, I think the whole point is just that hangout vibe where you're just getting these little moments. Uh, yeah, and that, and that party did create that vibe pretty well, even if it felt like it almost felt a little out of place compared to the rest of the movie, as far as like he's created this own very contained world that feels pretty deep with all these characters. And it's like, here's him being like, Oh, this is a thing that happened in the sixties. People party, famous people party at the Playboy mansion. And it just felt like, uh, it felt like a little more tacked on than, whereas everything else felt pretty self-contained in the world. It's also like, you know, I think contrasting like, you know, between her life and Rick Dalton's life, like Rick Dalton's social life, even though he's been in the industry for a while, you don't see him interacting with any like famous celebrity. His friends. social life is about as happening as mine, which is not saying a lot. <laughs> until until he goes to Italy and gets a girlfriend. Yeah, uh, like he's just like chilling on his pool, reciting lines. Where meanwhile, like uh, Sharon Tate is like having the time of her life at the Playboy Mansion, you know. Um, and so, like, and also, I think, and it also shows that, like, you know, Steve McQueen, who Rick Dalton views as like the person that like living the type of career he wishes he had, is also like longing for something even yeah, though he, he doesn't seem like he's like totally he's not over there dancing with Sharon Tate you know he's he, he's like god how the fuck am I losing to these like like these like 12 year old looking guys <laughs> yeah and I mean I, I, I mean I wanted to talk about Margot Robbie but the, the reason I just brought it back there is because we were talking about that final scene and how I mean people are using that combined with the Margot Robbie stuff is just a way to kind of give Quentin a little more crap about his treatment of female characters but like I think we both agree that like I mean or I mean, while I'm saying that she could have had more lines, I still thought that like, again, it's not a controversy at all if it's a lesser known actress. And at the same time, she, um, I mean, like I thought she did give a really, really good performance, uh, even with, uh, it being a a limited speaking part. And I think, I feel like, and you had mentioned Jackie Brown earlier and we talked a little bit about kill bill. Like, I mean, 
he there's no question he he knows how to write female characters and he doesn't take that lightly you know and i think yeah, he obviously had a reason for wanting to do it this way and i don't think it was something that uh ruined the movie or anything like that i just could i could i could have used a little more of her because i do really like margot roby and uh but like i don't know i still thought that action was pretty fun and yeah i guess it was kind of over the top but like I'm, and I, I guess it's very low-hanging fruit but I'm, i'd be lying if i said i didn't get really excited when i saw that flamethrower yeah yeah the only thing I, the only the weird nitpick i have yeah uh, about like because the flamethrower comes um pops up in this like you know almost like this inglorious bastard style like uh world war ii film and the only nitpick i have is just like i kind of wish that like the movie was a little bit sort of like hill caesar where you got to see the cohen sort of like explore different genres whereas this film you know you you mostly stick to the westerns and the World War Two stuff. Like, like the world the, that that World War Two movie kind of just annoys me because it's like it just looks like an outtake from the Glorious Bastards. It's like, <laughs> oh, you could do this. Like, I would have rather see like Rick Dalton star on an episode of like Star Trek or something. There's something where like we haven't seen Tarantino's take on. That's why like I kind of like the FBI show because I'm like, oh, like you know that feels. A little bit different you know what i mean um right we've, we've seen him both do westerns and world war ii stuff yeah yeah yeah. like it would be kind of cool just like you know what's the quentin tarantino's like take on a 60 soap opera you know what i mean like and you know like that was just like my weird like nitpick it's not even like it's not even like a giant one where like, i hold against the film but yeah um, but yeah like but with the ending like how did you like feel about it like did you like did you see it? Because, like, when I came, when I, when I, in the lead up to this movie, like, I knew that he was doing some type of historical revisionism with it. And I, I knew that it was just, I, it had to involve, like, in my head, like, okay, getting Rick and Cliff somehow in Sharon Tate's house or whatever with oh. the murders. And then as the movie was about to get to that climax, I was like, oh, I see what he's going to do. Um, he's gonna instead of the Manson family going to Sharon Tate's house, they get distracted and go to Rick Dalton's house and they kill him. And then like Rick Dalton sort of becomes like a martyr figure. That was like my. Yeah, I wouldn't have been shocked if Cliff had died and then he didn't. And I, I liked, I, I really liked that ending though. I mean, it's funny that you brought it there because I was gonna ask you if you wanted to sing the praises, praises of Robert Richardson because there are like a lot of really cool sequences and he does a really impressive job. And I even, I even did a lot of reading about how they, they kind of use cranes to do some of these shots between Rick and, uh, and Sharon and, and the Polanski residents. Um, I love the overhead shots, especially the final overhead. Okay. Shot. See, I kind of just wanted him, uh, Margot Roby and Leonardo DiCaprio to share the screen at least once. And I guess they kind of did it there, but it would have been cool to like have a close up of that conversation instead of just doing it through the speaker box. But like, I guess the speaker boxes are kind of a, intercoms are kind of a, a device that he obviously kind of likes using um but like I, I i i like the ending as far as like what happens in that like i i like thinking of like it's a cool way to do the revisionist history thing you didn't really need to actually i i just i just did not need quentin tarantino's version of the manson murders like because yeah, yeah. as... i like i think this is a far for people who are like like frightened which also is sort of like i think what tarantino i think his critics kind of underestimate him um but like this is far more this is the more tasteful version of this film than i think anybody was expecting oh for sure yeah and so i mean i and i, and I like that and i like the possibilities that it opens up or if you just want to think about what's going to happen with these characters i mean yeah uh, and it, it, that fairy tale aspect of the film yeah i mean 
I, I, I mean, I was even listening to one person, though, that kind of, like, was like, man, shouldn't there have been some acknowledgement of what happens with the Roman Polanski? I'm like, no. I mean, like, I mean, yeah, we can, igno- we can acknowledge in, in real life he's not a good guy, but, like, all the bad stuff with him happened in the 70s, and we're in this moment right now. And you could argue part of the re- partially the reason why that happens is probably he's a dude probably, like, great, like not to excuse his crime of child pedophilia, but, like, it's probably coming out of also, like, you know, grieving for the fact that, like, he's in a dark state at that point his wife an unborn child just died so sure uh i i see where you're going with that but i'm just yeah. saying like let's even just forget happen, let's, sure. say, let's just say it's an alternative timeline then and yeah i don't even need that acknowledged within the within this movie and mm-hmm. do, do, does rick go on to star in like roman polanski films uh does <laughs> Is Rick in Chinatown? I don't know, yeah. but like yeah, it's, yeah, it's Rick the Jack Nicholson character in Chinatown. Yeah, I, I mean, maybe who knows? Maybe so. It's like I, I, I certainly like the if we're, if we're, I certainly like thinking about that. If we're if if it's just like we can envision our own futures for these characters, it's kind of cool to think about. And I just would have liked to have seen like. I, I don't know. I, I like that it's the final scene. It's kind of a cool culmination that they've just kind of been there the whole time. And then he's so insecure, but then these people genuinely seem excited to meet Jake Cahill. And yeah, I, I I like that because it's like, look, man, like people like grew up on this kind of shit when like they had three channels to watch and you're like on one of the networks every week. And like you probably are more beloved than you realize when he spent, spent the whole movie being super self-conscious. And which is like why, like, I think it's also like a shrewd move, like because you're complaining about like, you know, like these big actors in these small roles in movies like Timothy Oliphant in the Western TV show. I'm not complaining. That's the last thing I wanted to talk about besides the cinematography. Like, I mean, I was just going to go through some of those small performances with you, but, like, what were you going to say? Sorry. Oh, I was just saying, like, you know, like, Timothy Oliphant, you know, a former star of a Western TV show, too, sort of, um, like, it's sort of like a Rick Dalton of his time, where, like, you know, you may not think of him as, like, this great movie star on the same level as Leonardo DiCaprio, but, you know, he was on a TV show that people loved, you know? Like, it's just, like, sort of, like, you know, everybody has, like, their, you know, like, George Takei has been banking a lot, like, in recent years as this guy who was on the Star Trek TV show. You know, like, it's just, you know, like, you get appreciated, like, everything you do sort of can be appreciated by someone. Um, But, like, with the, like, I think with the fairy tale ending of, like, you know, the revisionist history, it also goes back to, like, all right, so if the Manson, because, like, you know, there's this famous quote by Joan Didion that says, like, you know, the night of Sharon Tate's murder was the was the day that the 60s ended. And so, like, this type of era in Hollywood, like, if this doesn't happen, if, if like, you know, Rick Dalton ends up starring in Roman Polanski movies, like, does the new Hollywood movement ever happen? Like, does what happened, you know, like, this, this, era in Hollywood that, that Rick Dalton's part of, like this old-fashioned, like, you know, um, form of, uh, of filmmaking, does that, you know, sort of continue? Which, you know, that probably, you know, if you don't get new Hollywood, then you don't get, like, the indie boom of the 90s, which Quentin Tarantino came up it came up of Asia. You know what I mean? Like, this, it, so it's sort of like, you know, someone, like, I think Richard Brody's review in New York, and the New Yorker was like, you know, this movie is obscenely, I don't really agree with Brody on anything, but like, um, he was like saying the movie is obscenely like uh, regressive because, you know, a, like this movie is very anti counterculture. Um, and that counterculture, you know, keeps in place these like men of like, 
these white these white men of privilege like Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth um, in power and sort of presents like the future that's coming, you know, and it also implies, you know, the easy riders of that era as well. The movies that come about from like the Polanski's of the world. And like, does that happen if Sharon Tate is uh, still alive? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I I wouldn't describe that much. Like, I don't know. I th- I feel like that 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 era of movies is coming no matter what. And I yeah. I, 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 I I don't know. I, I guess I hadn't really thought about that. I mean, I'd heard about that argument with like, it's the movie stands with respect to the counterculture. And I I, I just I, I I guess I just haven't listened to the right Tarantino interview where he really commented on that take. I mean, he gives great interviews, and I'm sure he has commented on that somewhere. And I just haven't seen it, so. I don't really want to ascribe too much onto it with though without having like heard what he said in that regard. But uh but what I like though is just like the ending allows you to like mull over like the you know, multitude of possibilities definitely that happen. Which also like the whole time I'm watching that movie, I'm like, what if someone made like like what if Tarantino made a movie about like the twenty sixteen election <laughs> and and like and, and like and like you pulled the alternative history thing where like Trump isn't elected like like, like will we ever get that take but yeah like it's just it's now I wonder if like he'll ever do that like revisionist history thing ever again now that we've come to expect it now well, that'll, be, that'll be my last question before we sign off on the pod but uh, just a, a few more questions for you before I have to put myself to bed. I, we mentioned Timothy Oliphant. I, I'm a huge Deadwood fan. I actually haven't watched Justified. I plan on doing it at some point, but I oh, thought he justified. I thought he fit, fit, fit in pretty seamlessly here. Obviously, it's pretty cool that he had like such a long, uh, long scene and what was one of the more interesting scenes of the movie. And he, I thought he did a really good job. Uh, but like I was saying earlier, like they, there's like a lot of like parts for like small parts for people that you've seen before and uh that are you're varying varying levels of familiar with i mean did, did you just enjoy watching people pop up was, is that your kind of stance on it it's like of course no one's gonna say no to a tarantino movie if he just wants to get a lot of different people to show up then more power to him yeah no i think everybody is pretty well like you know like Leon and dunham is like as you know and i think was that of- dis- was that distracting like i'm actually kind of more of a Lena dunham fan than most people but like i was wondering like did we need her here no, I thought she was good as, like, one of the Mancy. Like, I think it's sort of an interesting, like, I think it's a good use of her in, in almost, like, a weird meta commentary, too, where, like, okay, she's part of this, like, counterculture, like, this, like, what we view as, like, the misguided, like, you know, uh, hippies or whatever, and sort of that's kind of her persona now. And then, like, Dakota Fanning, you know, we haven't seen Dakota Fanning in a long time, and she's great as Squeaky Fro. She's, like, really kind of, freaky and scary did they do you think that was his first choice or did you get the lesser fanning do you think he wanted l no hey hey like here's the thing with dakota like i mean this is <laughs> one of those things where like um the dakota seems like in the like the john travolta uh um pam greer like uh, uh type of actor that's parent yeah. you know where it's like, hey man, you forgot about their heyday. They were really great, and like she was in Ocean's Eight. She had the quick uh, cameo in Ocean's Eight, and she, uh, I think, um, uh, unfortunately for you and McGregor, American Pastoral was not great, Bob. But like he wanted that to be great, and yeah. that was going to be a thing. So she hasn't really been in like anything that I saw since uh, 2013's Kelly Reichert's uh, Night Moves. And before that, I guess she was in the Twilight movies, for all I know. But uh, 
The favorite child actress. Like. It's kind of wild. It's been almost 10 years since The Runaways, which I really like, but it's like, wow, Dakota, like you've, you've been around a while. I'm glad yeah. that Quentin brought you back. Yeah, no, like, I like I, I liked her as a child. I, I love the her in War of the Worlds. Like, I'm like, like, yeah, my take is just like what happened probably that's like in the time that she probably went to like college or something and like was growing up, like Elf was around and probably just sort of. Elf like, just acted straight through the years where one would be in college. And I think yeah. Dakota did go to NYU. I didn't realize that. Um, so good for her. But yeah. Yeah, uh, I think it's like sort of she took a break and then like I could talk about Elle Fanning and Dakota Fanning all day. We got we we we, we got to keep it moving, but yeah, I you know yeah. I agree. She was good. It, it was just weird. It was wild just how deep the cast was of the that they for the Manson kids. I mean, for people that like I don't even know how to like. Oh yeah, Margaret Qualley. We haven't even talked about her. Like, I mean, she, Margaret Qualley is my girl. I go back way back to the, the leftovers with her. Uh, but I mean amazing in 2017's Novitiate, which no one saw, but it's an incredible movie. People should watch it. It's just a bunch of young actresses throwing like 100 miles an hour and as, as nuns. Uh, me, like a Jewish guy, like enjoyed the movie about all these repressed nuns. Uh, it was really fun. And uh, she had that. She was in Nice Guys. I mean, very, very creepy and uh, very uh, confident, though, as she's staring the screen with Brad Pitt. Liked her, but like it was like even like if you went further down the line, you, you had uh, Maya, Hawk. Maya Hawk. Obviously, you have the Uma Thurman connection, uh, which she only has like a handful of lines, but she, they're pretty funny. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but then you had like Sydney Sweeney, who is like uh, doing big things on Euphoria now. Like she's just one of the Manson kids. Like has like one line. Uh, Mikey Madison, who plays the uh, oldest daughter on Better Things, like she's one of the girls that gets killed. Uh, it's like it's like this very deep bench of actresses just to round out that uh, Harley Quinn Smith, who you know Kevin Smith's daughter. Uh, Will, uh, Willis, Bruce she, Willis. I I, I, don't, I don't remember which one she was. I didn't know she was one of the Manson kids. I was trying to look. I was, like, I was trying to find where she's at. She's not cut out of the movie because she's in the credits, but like she's in it. But like I didn't so, see part of it, so, I didn't recognize her. so yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I, I guess it, none of it really. Lena Dunham was a little funny in that regard, but like it was whatever. It, it was okay, and I mean, like. I don't know. We talked about like Emil Hirsch, who is like an actor I really like, but that's another problematic thing where he was like literally convicted <laughs> yeah. for like choking a woman out at like Sundance a couple years ago. Well, not when he did that because I had like a lot of stock in Emil Hirsch, and then he oh, had me like, too. Yeah, like like you know like it's like yo, it's like yo, Quentin. Like I like this thing where you like resurrect old careers, but like does it have to be the guy that got convicted for choking a woman out at Sundance? Yeah, no. Like, but I would say he's actually pretty good in the movie as like Jay Sebring. You know, yeah, I know. It's, it's like. He's like he's like crazy. Like he, he like literally went off the deep end for a few years there, and it's like. I would say like I remember a long time ago uh, when he was promoting Hateful Eight. It was like at Comic Con, and this was like at the height of like the Cosby controversy, and he was like saying, "Yeah, no, I thought about like if I had made this movie in the '60s, who I would cast, and then the Sam Jackson role, Bill Cosby." <laughs> like, like I, I don't. Like this is a dude who also like went on record like defending Roman Polanski, um, which you know uh, I'm not going to repeat those uh, comments. Uh, uh, but yeah, like I, I I personally don't think that like when it comes to problematic people, like Tarantino really gives a shit. No, he doesn't. Did, uh, did you watch The Americans? I can't remember. I've seen a couple episodes. I haven't watched it all, but I like it. For okay, one so the guy that plays. Uh... Um, Abigail Folger's husband. I, I forgot exactly how he like. I mean, obviously one of the victims, uh, but I can't remember like uh, how to pronounce his name. It was like Wojciech Frykowski. 
he was played by Costa Ronin, who played one of the Russians on The Americans. I really like that actor. Um, so, and I, I didn't even recognize him. I'd be like, wait, who do you play? So, but like, you know, he doesn't really watch that much television. Like, like he doesn't keep up much current television and and movies though. But, um, but the the two shows that he he thinks are like the best of the decade that he's seen so far is The Americans. So that's probably why he got cast. Mm-hmm. And also a show on Fox called Nine One One. And also, the little girl was cast because he was a fan of um, America ha- American Housewife, which is a sitcom on ABC. Huh. Like, yeah, the, he doesn't like Game of. He's not tempted to watch Game of Thrones. Like, those are just huh. on American television. Interesting. But yeah, now that I'm looking at this cast list, you know, I wanted to like run through them. But like, I mean, you know, like the Kurt Russell and Zoe Bell, they are regulars. It wasn't too. It, those parts. Those parts were big enough that like it wasn't distracting to me. I guess it's just like. Two things though with Kurt Russell's character is he related to stuntman Mike from Death Proof, as opposed to stuntmen? And then secondly, um, he's the narrator of the film. Is it told from his perspective? Like, <laughs> like so many like unanswerable questions. There. I I, I, did, I forgot that he had narrated part of it, but like I I don't even though like obviously the whole shared universe relatives throughout Tarantino movies is like a thing. I I didn't take I did I didn't make that connection i didn't really think too much about the year in which death proof was set i didn't want to that would have made my head hurt um but yeah i mean i, I was also really uh uh cool the, the late luke perry to show up i was happy for him that's pretty cool that like i mean that's how he kind of goes out um i mean i would have rather him um still be with us but like it's kind of cool that like he kind of worked consistently ever after 902 went off the air unlike everyone else that was on that show and then he well, also another 90210 star rebecca gayhart it, who i think was luke perry's love interest on the show is oh. right, yeah movie. it wasn't like a regular in the same way luke perry was but I, I i didn't i mean i'm just not as familiar with her work uh only other shout out i guess we didn't do yet that i wanted to make was to um uh shoot now i forgot it. i was just like looking at this whole list and oh austin butler uh who played tex watson is gonna be the new elvis i don't yeah. and baz lerman's elvis i mean i thought that was for some reason, I thought I assumed he was like a British actor, but he's actually American. So I was like almost more impressed, like watching the movie until I realized he wasn't British. But like I thought he was like sufficiently creepy. So uh, he really hadn't done anything all that impressive in his career before getting cast here. I think he'd done like smaller kids Disney type things or adjacent stuff. So, I mean, good on Tarantino for like seeing that he is a little more talented. Um, Someone that I want to like shout out like that, like he's not like a big name. Um but the dude who played uh, Sam Wanabaker, the director of the TV show that Rick Dalton's on, uh, Nicholas Hammond is the actor. Uh, like, I, I, like, I thought that was like a really good performance. Like, uh, like nobody was really commenting on it, but like, I, I love the flamboyant director of the TV show. Yeah, where had I seen that guy before? Um... Uh, uh, he apparently was in The Sound of Music. Yeah. Um, Oh, that 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 was where I've been hearing of it. Yeah, he, he Friedrich von Trapp. Yeah, and um, he, was, he played Peter Parker. Interesting in the seventies. Yeah, like like the Spider Man on TV. Was, yeah, okay. which are apparently not good, but yeah, the movie like is pretty. Any, Oh, sorry. Sorry. Uh, no, I was just going to ask if you had any other uh, odds and ends you want to talk about, whether it be like any sh- shots for, of Robert Richardson's, anything about the soundtrack. I'm, I mean, it, the soundtrack's obviously pretty great as they are for yeah. most of his movies. I just don't know music as well as most people. So if you want to have any more uh, insightful observations into that or the 
any other thing, plot points or anything else? I just wanted to kind of give you a chance to uh, address any other miscellaneous points that I didn't touch on. No, it's like a very well-crafted movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like Tarantino's regulars, like, uh, did their jobs, uh, the production design. There's no way it does not get nominated for an Oscar. And I think this is, you know, like now like a huge, like, like maybe not the front runner, but front runner that we have right now, like we know it's going to be a big player when it comes to award season. Yeah, I mean, it's like a movie about Hollywood that's very well made. It might, maybe not like quite as high on the um, critical reception as like something that might win Best Picture typically would be. Uh, wait, 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 wait. I think it's well more well liked than Green Book. To be fair, <laughs> fair, fair. I guess I, you got to kind of throw that out the window after last year for sure. I mean, uh, I, I mean, I'd be perfectly happy with that. I mean, I guess there's still it's probably like the first definite like Best Picture nominee we've seen this year. I'd say probably right. Um, yeah um and it's it's a it's like i think we're pretty confident that brad's getting nominated and leo probably yeah and the production design production design screenplay yeah cinematography i mean uh yeah i mean i definitely original screenplay i mean it's like kind of his his, which his category i think this is which is insane that like this movie you know like someone pointed out so like i think this is the first like, like, I don't, okay. I don't think a single original film has been like number one at the box office this entire summer, and this film got like the closest. Like, so even with like you know a director who's practically his own IP. What two, does that What does that mean? Did Did Lion King beat it last weekend? Yeah. Oh it did. shit. <laughs> so yeah, like that's the crazy thing. So like, even though like um, you know, it had the biggest stars in the world, it had like a director who it, you know is a star in his in his own right, um, and you know had a huge ad campaign um, and got really good reviews. It still like came in second place. Line. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't want to talk about how sad the box office, the state of the box office is right now. <laughs> the highest grossing non Disney movie this year uh us yeah yeah at number seven it's impressive i guess that a radar movie has that title um, yeah to me, no, was, was us pg-13 actually that one's our that's okay, our okay the, the thing is like horror films it's weird like i think the only way you can almost get like an original film made now is like if it's a horror film because like yeah. they're, they're or, or, or a quentin tarantino movie yeah yeah um which is insane because like i I, i'm kind of shocked that people love this movie um because i don't know how much like the average you know person who's not really into movies feel about movies about movies and you know it's not like or just the fact that a lot of people are going are are gonna hear that it's not like your typical gory quentin tarantino movie yeah and then you know even like if you had to compare this to like say something like la la land you know I'm not saying, like, everybody's versed in, like, 50s musicals, but you kind of know, like, they're iconic enough that even without seeing them, you have some idea of, like, what it's referencing or whatever. And then this, like, like, I, like, I don't know if anybody has any idea what Lancer is, you know? Um, so, in you know, and it's just, you're hanging out with these characters. There's not, it's, it's a pretty plotless movie. So, I'm it's kind of astounding that the movie has been pretty successful so far. Right. No. Yeah. My last question for you then is going to be, I, I don't want to talk about whether or not Quentin Tarantino is like uh, full of it when it comes to his uh, whole 10 movie proclamation. What does kill bill count as one or two? I'm kind of tired of hearing that discussion, but if, I mean, 
and whether or not he's even going to make one more movie. I mean, after seeing this and seeing what a movie looks like in, uh, about Hollywood, a subject matter he hadn't tackled yet, uh, what do you want him to do next if you're just going to presume that he's not directing that Star Wars movie? Do you have anything else that's like, I want him to tackle this area before he retires? So, like, because I was really excited about the Star Trek idea um, because it's just like I, he might still do he's kind of coy about it when he's getting asked in interviews yeah like my thing um is just basically with the star trek idea it's just like that would be kind of cool just because I, I have no idea what that looks like yeah. like he's never done a special effects movie but um make star wars rated r with a bunch of f-bombs yeah star trek um and but you know like i i don't know like I think horror, because I don't agree. You know, Death Proof, it kind of is like a slasher film. Um, so I don't really, I like this, like, I don't really know. Uh, um, like, sci fi is something he definitely hasn't done. A musical would be very interesting, because he, music is a huge part of his music, movies. So I'm just going through, like, the, you know, maybe like a biblical epic would be kind of cool. Um, I heard someone mentioned that the other day. Does he have like a Ben Hur in him? Yeah, um, I, and I think back to that SNL sketch when Christoph Waltz hosted, like Jesus Unchained. Um, <laughs> um, let me think. Maybe a children's film that'd be kind of funny if that's how he ended it, like like a rated G. <laughs> you know. Um, um, but yeah, like I'm I'm trying to think what would be kind of like. Something we haven't seen him do before, but I'd be curious what like, because he said like with horror that people couldn't handle the disturbed, fucked up thing that he has in his head. Um, that like I was about to say, give me like a really t- twisted uh, romantic comedy, but I guess that's what true true romance was. So yeah, it's like, yeah. I, I I don't know that that was my my head went to tr- romantic comedy though when I heard when I was trying to think of something else I wanted to tackle. The thing with Tarantino is just like a lot of his movies are like a mismatched genres anyway. Right, so, right, right. So it's hard. You don't want to put him in a box. I was just kind of curious, like what that could look like. But I, I like the idea of thinking like, does he, does he have some kind of epic in him, even if it's not biblical? Or maybe it's like more of a, I don't know. Maybe just like a more of a corporate setting or something. Like a lot of his, most, his movies don't really take place anywhere really that close to within businesses, you know, or something like that. You know, temporary. Like not. I think the last contemporary movie was Kill Bill. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, just something, something that's like, I mean, oh, a, ga- uh, <laughs> a gangster film. He's never done that, and I'm like, Reservoir Dogs is that? Um, um, but maybe like a '30s, like you know, like like uh, like something. Because I'm just thinking of like what. And there's also like subgenres that he loves. Like he loves spaghetti westerns. He loves uh, black exploitation. I'm just trying to think of another type of. The only other one I can think of is like Giallo horror would be in his uh, vein, but it's just yeah. That's why I think I'm so intrigued by the Star Trek possibility because it is okay. He's never done sci-fi. He's never done a special effects movie. He's never done a franchise film. What would that look like? I can't even imagine it. So that's why it seems very exciting. Um, Like. I don't know why people are so worked up about it either. Like, I, like in the negative reaction, I get that there's Trekkies thinking that. Like, my take is also with this movie is you saw that he could be very tasteful with like Sharon Tate, uh, fate. Like, I would imagine he's he, not going to ruin your childhood, people. Yeah, like I like he's a Trekkie. Like, so I would, I would assume he would approach it with the same amount of love 
and respect as yeah. anybody else in the world. All right, man. It's my bedtime. So before we go, do you have anything you want to plug? I gotta admit, man, I've been. I, I'm getting more and more skeptical of Gemini, man. Oh no! <laughs> like, like last year, I, you just kept getting more and more confident about um, Marwin, and now it's going the opposite way on Gemini, man. Yeah, like, I well, here's the. I'm getting more and more confident about Will Smith's performance in it. I think he, I think he's given probably one of his best performances just by the trailers alone um, that he has done in recent years. So, I think Focus is underrated. Another Margot Robbie joint. The first half of Focus is good. I think two thirds of Focus is great. Sure. The the ending is bad, but but you know, the, you know, like we don't get those movies anymore. So, um, but yeah, I, I'm a little bit worried about Gemini Man, but I, I I'll still be a tight man. I guess I'm doing a bad job of it, but till October. All right. Yeah. Well, you have that to look forward to, I guess, kind of. We'll see. Uh, as usual, you can follow me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Josh Jernavoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y, the podcast Twitter, Rewind Movie Pod. Next week, we'll have a podcast on Hobbs and Shaw. So, everyone, thanks for listening. Stay tuned for that one, and we'll see you next time.